Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Many people are intimately aware of the widely celebrated I Have a Dream speech, which was delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King during the 1963 March on Washington. Few people, however, are aware of the bold and daring I Have a Dream vision of Soul City, North Carolina, which was created and developed by attorney Floyd McKissick Sr. during the 1970s. That game-changing dream involved the proposed creation of a city in Warren County, which would be developed, centered, and directed by African-Americans. This development effort was directed toward the creation of a model for Black economic empowerment and was designed to bring jobs and increase economic activities to a portion of North Carolina, which had suffered devastating losses and economic decline due to the collapsing North Carolina tobacco economy. Floyd McKissick Jr. was an esteemed civil rights leader who became the executive director of the Congress of Racial Equality and a leading spokesperson for the concept of black power during the 1960s. He was also a graduate of the NCCU School of Law, a lead plaintiff in the McKissick versus Carmichael lawsuit, which successfully desegregated the then racially segregated UNC School of Law. And he mounted a number of successful challenges to the entrenched school desegregation, which existed in Durham and in other North Carolina counties. Later in life, he served as a district court judge in Warren, Granville, and Vance counties. In short, he was a civil rights icon who was responsible for many of the successful challenges against Jim Crow. Always a forward and progressive thinker, McKissick sought to use the Federal New Communities Act which had been enacted by Congress during the Richard Nixon administration in order to build a community where African-Americans and others could live in an effort to promote a more just society in North Carolina. If you will recall at the time, North Carolina was beset by an extreme and violent Jim Crow environment where African-Americans were regularly under attack because they sought to fight back against racial discrimination and oppression. Utilizing funds which he was able to secure from the New Communities Act, McKissick formed a development company which purchased over 5,000 acres of land in Warren County. And that bore the name Soul City, which was intended to provide homes for a projected population of 35,000 people. 
as development of this vision took root, it became the target of the arch conservative and racist Jesse Helms and the Raleigh News and Observer, which orchestrated and directed a successful campaign to destroy McKissick's dream. More recently, Thomas Healy has written a history of the Soul City Enterprise. And that book is entitled Soul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia. Soul City does not appear in conversations by many people today because its history has been suppressed and obscured, but we are going to discuss it tonight. Joining us for this discussion is attorney Floyd McKissick Jr., who is presently a commissioner of the North Carolina Utilities Commission. He's a former state senator from Durham, and he served as the planning director for Soul City. So, Commissioner McKissick, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so very much, Irv. It's, it's great to be with you, and uh, I always enjoy spending time with you and uh, discussing whatever the issues and topics may happen to be, and Soul City's always been near and dear to my heart. Well, it's always been near and dear to, uh, to my heart. Let me just say at, at the outset, uh, I, I go a long ways back with, uh, with your father. Uh, I, I first met him when I was a uh, student at Long mm -hmm. Island University in uh, Brooklyn and uh, was a uh, fledging member of the uh, Congress of Racial Equality at the time. And uh, Long Island University was uh, put up for sale. And uh, Floyd came in as a part of uh, CORE. And I recall meeting with, uh, with Floyd and the uh, trustees at the uh, university where Fort Floyd had proposed to purchase Long Island uh, University to make it into a, uh, an African-American institution in the, uh, in the North. And I was flabbergasted uh, when the uh, president of the uh, university asked, uh, well, uh, Mr. McKissick, uh, how, how, much, how much do you propose paying for the university? And Floyd's response was uh, $1. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we think that uh, you ought to give it to CORE uh, as uh, payback for all of the contributions that African-Americans have made to the development of this, uh, uh, of this university. And uh, I, I, I was blown away uh, because I said, wow, this, this guy is, uh, he's creative and bold and uh, didn't crack a smile. So uh, I, I've had a long life uh, with, uh, with, with Floyd, uh, uh, Floyd McKissick Sr. Uh, oh, yes. Well, and I, also I can remember Floyd McKissick Jr. True, true. I, I can remember time seeing you and my dad together, and it was always great friendship and camaraderie and, uh, and mutual respect, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at the outset, let me just, just ask you, you know, because you, you grew up in a... Um, politically charged household and during a politically charged time. So can you kind of start us off uh, with, with our audience talking about uh, the uh, impact of uh, being reared in the uh, Floyd McKissick 
uh, senior household and what that has meant uh, to your growth and development? Well, the thing I learned by growing up in that type of household is that you always were driven by your convictions, by your beliefs, by your principles, um, and, and very much so, particularly during the days of the civil rights movement. You, you didn't let people define you or what you were doing or what your aspirations were, whether I was desegregating a public school here in Durham at the time, when I desegregated public school, it was at the sixth grade level. And, you know, teachers had never seen a black student before. And my mother was the plaintiff in a lawsuit that desegregated public schools here in Durham. And my oldest sisters desegregated the, at the junior high school and high school level. Joyce Lynn at Durham High School in the uh, fall of 1959 and Andre Carr Jr. High School. So, I mean, you, you understood the challenges. You understood what it was all about. You understood that there was a greater good, that you were fighting not just for yourselves individually, but you were fighting for the same access and opportunities for others that would follow. And, uh, and you would persevere. It didn't make a difference whether if Joycelyn was confronted at that high school. And remember in 1959, it was before the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So restrooms were still segregated. Uh, public accommodations were still segregated unless there were local exceptions to those rules. And, uh, you know, she went in to use a restroom over there at Durham High School. There was a time where they tried to girls in the restroom try to stick her head in the floor because you weren't supposed to be in there. So, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, it was picketing or demonstrations, uh, you name it. It was always fight. It was always challenges. Uh, during the time we lived here in Durham, there were basically um, people who would sit on our front porch every night from dusk dark to the break of dawn for probably three and a half to four years uh, providing protection uh, with shotguns and rifles because the Ku Klux Klan routinely come by and throw out leaflets let you know that you've been visited by the nice Ku Klux Klan. They'd send a letter, hate mail, in, in the mail to you. I mean, you know, my mother used to use these Playtex gloves they used to design for washing dishes in because you'd take the mail that came in and it was stationary. It said nice Ku Klux Klan and you held it by its corner so that it could be analyzed for fingerprints later on to see who might have sent it. So, I mean, you, you grew up in that kind of environment, always knowing that uh, there were challenges, there were obstacles, other things you needed to do. And, uh, and you know, through, through the years, my dad was national chairman, national director of Corps. You know, he spoke there at that March on Washington that, that you spoke of, August 28th, 1963. And he was over at the White House with President Kennedy that day. He, he spoke on behalf of Corps. Corps at that point was these, actually the second largest civil rights organization in America. They had about 240 to 250 chapters in roughly about 42, 43 states. NAACP was always by far the biggest, uh, by far, and you know, by multiples. But CORE was really the second largest in those days, bigger, larger than SCLC and, and SNCC. So, I mean, you, you, you understood what that was about. You understood uh, what it was like to fight for civil rights and to have passion and conviction to do so. And I worked with my dad during the years he was with CORE. Um, even though I was in my, my high school years then. And, uh, and of course, later when he uh, advocated for and announced, uh, you know, Soul City and, and through the years the way he articulated the need for black power and defined what black power was, political power, economic power, uh, ability to have self-determination rights, uh, ability and also extending out in our black community to identify as being black rather than being as colored as Negro and identifying with black nationalists and people in countries over in, in Africa when they were being uh, basically set free and independent for the first time after colonization. People don't realize that they were fighting in Africa for rights 
At the same time, we were fighting for rights here in America, uh, you know, whether it was Kenya or uh, Tanzania or a host of other countries. So, you know, I saw those battles too and accompanied my dad on trips to Africa in that time frame. So it was a fascinating childhood, uh, a fascinating family to grow up in, and you learn the intrinsic values of fighting for what you believed in. Well, I know, I know that you had uh, a lot of uh, fervent uh, conversations uh, with, with your dad and many of the uh, individuals who surrounded uh, him uh, as he moved from the uh, civil rights uh, posture as the, uh, the, the director of, uh, of CORE, uh, where he became more interested in Black economic uh, development. Uh, which was not really a distinct difference between the quest for civil rights and the uh, quest for uh, black economic uh, development. But you, you mentioned you know, this, this notion of, of Soul City and uh, uh, just kind of briefly, can, can, you, can you tell how this concept developed in his mind uh, and what were the, the contours of uh, that, uh, that thinking uh, that he engaged in uh, during those early days? Sure. Um, the idea originally first, he first conceptualized it when he was taking a brief sabbatical from CORE. There was a gentleman by the name of uh, Kenneth Clark mm. uh, up in New York State who had an organization known as MARC. Um, and they offered my dad a sabbatical for, um, I think it was, wasn't a very long one, especially about, uh, about a month or so to sit back and think and reflect upon what he might want to do in terms of moving forward ideas uh, that were non-traditional dealing with civil rights that could help effectuate what civil rights might mean and opening up doors of opportunities. It was during that sabbatical that the idea of building a new town uh, emerged and crystallized uh, and about how that might be done and what it would take to do it and, and the opportunities it would provide for Black entrepreneurship, uh, for Black economic development, uh, and, and for these communities to be uh, multiracial communities. They weren't going to be all Black, but, but at the same time, if, if opportunities for Black to uh, excel in those leadership roles were there, whether they were architects or urban planners or economists or those that were involved in the land development, uh, and, and likewise for for political activism to become engaged, that it was a model that he wanted to uh, see come to fruition, if at all possible. So that's when he first conceived of it, and he uh, announced it shortly thereafter after he after he left CORE um, and decided that that was what he wanted to pursue. We had initially purchased about 21 acres, 2,100 acres of land in, in Warren County. I think, as you mentioned earlier, had the highest outward migration rate in any county in North Carolina. People were leaving there looking for opportunities elsewhere in the Northeast, frequently finding themselves in despair and not finding them. Uh, and the idea was to offer a place where those people could, um, could excel and reach their potential without having to move the Northeast. And likewise, to give an opportunity for people who might have migrated to the Northeast, the major cities that were living in some of the urban ghettos in our country to have a place that they could return home to. Uh, so that's what, what occurred. And, uh, and we later, you know, ended up, uh, you know, 
applying for and obtaining a loan guarantee commitment under the Urban Growth and New Communities Act of 1968. The commitment was made to us in uh, 1972, June 28th of 72. And of course we sold our first bonds on Wall Street in, uh, in March of 1974, the first 5 million. We later, uh, uh, several years later, sold another 5 million in bonds. We had about 10 million in bond proceeds plus additional grants and aid that we received to further the development of the project and to also acquire additional land. And we ended up owning approximately 3,600 acres of land that we were developing. Well, you know, we're talking to uh, Floyd McKissick, uh, Jr., uh, commissioner with the uh, North Carolina Utilities uh, Commission. And uh, we're discussing uh, Soul City, uh, its uh, history, uh, legacy, and uh, its, uh, its impact, uh, information that you should be well aware of, information that uh, uh, I think is very uh, inspiring uh, to you. But we're going to take our break uh, right now and want you to uh, stay with us here on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and we'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. When Congress approved the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote in 1920, it reflected on the generation's worth of work by suffragists of all races and backgrounds. Historically, attention has focused on the efforts of white movement leaders, but those same leaders worked alongside many lesser known suffragists of color who made crucial contributions to the cause while also battling racism and discrimination. One prominent leader was Nanny Helen Burroughs. Nanny Burroughs was born to a formerly enslaved couple in Virginia. Educator, feminist, suffragist, and member of the National Association of Colored Women, Burroughs committed her life to the empowerment and education of African-American women. When she was turned down for a public school teacher position, she decided to open her own school. Burroughs relied mostly on donations and small amounts by Black women and children in the community. In 1909, Burroughs managed to raise enough money to open the National Training School for Women and Girls. She created and offered a vigorous curriculum of academic and experiential courses to include public speaking, physical education, music, and much more. The National Training School for Women and Girls educated Black women from around the world. Burroughs died in May of 1961. In 1964, the school was renamed the Nanny Helen Burroughs School in her honor. The school was listed in the National Register of Historic Places in 1991. More information is at nps.gov and history.com. Virtual Justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us uh, this evening. We are talking with uh, Commissioner Ford McKissick, Jr. Uh, he is a uh, commissioner of the uh, Utilities, North Carolina Utilities Commission. And we're talking about uh, Soul City. Uh, and that's probably a topic that many of you have not uh, heard about uh, in the past, but it was uh, an effort 
uh, designed to develop uh, a new uh, predominantly African-American uh, community in uh, Warrington, in Warren County, right outside of uh, Warrington, and brought together some of the uh, very brightest minds uh, within the uh, African-American community, uh, working toward developing this, uh, this concept. And uh, Floyd McKissick uh, Jr. Uh, was a part of that, uh, of that enterprise, and he's here uh, this evening discussing that uh, with us. So starting back, uh, Floyd, can, can you kind of explain why Warren County? Uh, I mean, it, it was uh, uh, an outpost uh, at the uh, intersection of uh, North Carolina and, uh, and Virginia, uh, a, uh, a former uh, stronghold in the uh, tobacco uh, industry that uh, and 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 the county economically was dying. So why did uh, why did your father choose Warren County as the site uh, for uh, this Soul City venture? Sure. First of all, Soul City was the first freestanding new community uh, in the United States under that Federal Urban Growth and New Communities Act, which means that you know it was going to be outside of a major urban area. It wasn't going to be a suburban town um, outside of a, a major city or new town in town on urban renewal land. So it was designed to be freestanding and independent. Warren County's population was about 68% African-American back in 1970. Um, so, you know, it was in what they refer to as the Black Belt counties. People think of Warren County as being one of those counties, Warren over in Halifax, and, as well as Bertie County. So, you know, and that was one of the very places where African-Americans did not have the opportunities they uh, were, were interested in having. They did not have jobs. They did not have uh, um, the ability to, um, to maintain themselves there in a way that they could provide for their families. That's why they were leaving and migrating, going to places like New York or uh, Detroit or Washington. So my, my dad was able to identify a track of land there with the help of attorney T.T. Clayton. Uh, was local attorney. Uh, many people know his wife, uh, Eva Clayton, but she later uh, became a member of Congress uh, from North Carolina, first African-American female. So, you know, T.T. and my dad were, were, were close friends. Uh, so T.T. Was, was able to identify this uh, track of land that was available. Uh, so they got an option on that track of land and were able to get uh, financing on it through uh, Chase Manhattan Bank uh, and David Rockefeller, Chase Manhattan Bank. So uh, that land was identified for locational attributes. While it was in a county that uh, was 68% African-American and people were leaving at the same time, it was only a mile away from Interstate 85, which was recently built and open to the public. It was right on and enjoying US-1, which was a major north-south route at the time, and Seaboard Coastline Railroad, major railroad going all the way up and down the east coast of the United States ran right through the property. So it possessed locational attributes that would make it attractive to business and industries and as a destination uh, as well, if, if you had the infrastructure, when I say infrastructure, the roads, the water, the sewer, everything that was necessary to be able to have the nucleus to, to build a new town. Commissioner McKissick, I, you know, it's absolutely wonderful hearing you share you know, this firsthand account of, of your dad um, developing this idea. And, and one of the themes that I keep going back to, and it really kind of started with Irv's 
um, discussion about when he was at Long Island University and how bold your father was. And he was, you know, during the sabbatical coming up with non-traditional ideas. When he was thinking about Soul City, it was by design to be freestanding and independent. And you were in your early 20s at this time. Can you share with us what do you think um, contributed to your father's ability to be so bold? And how did that impact you as a young man? Well, I mean, he was bold. He was courageous. Um, he was independent. He, uh, he had enough uh, self-confidence that, he, you know, he, could, he very few people could have gone out there and sold the idea of there being an African-American development company that could apply to the government and get a federal loan guarantee for $14 million <laughs> to go out there and build a new town, literally in what many people would have called the middle of nowhere. But, you know, it took somebody who had that courage, that conviction, who really could uh, envision what it could be and what it could become, and who had the ability to sell that concept and persuade others that this was viable and that it could be done. Um, I think what it meant to me growing up in that environment, I, I attended so many of those meetings. I, I saw him network. I saw him uh, use his... Uh, uh, charismatic personality to bring people on a board, sometimes people who were doubters, sometimes people who were skeptics. And then in later years, I served as director of planning for the project between 1975 and 1980, we were doing much of the development at Soul City, building that infrastructure, uh, you know, and, and, we, and we did a lot. So, you know, I, I learned all the details. Uh, you know, I could sit there and uh, design a subdivision or design a roadway system and and estimate its projected costs based upon parameters that I was very acquainted with and familiar with and, uh, and be able to prepare grant applications that we needed to, to seek assistance through HUD to, to do so, or to uh, use our own funds and resources that we had obtained from bond funds to, to carry out those projects that needed to be done. I mean, we were successful in building the largest regional water system in the state of North Carolina that uh, tied together three, three counties, Warren County, Vance County, as well as uh, Granville County over in Oxford. So, I mean, you know, and, and we contributed about $9 million of cost, about a 12, $13 million system. The other communities paid their fair share as well. But, you know, you had to conceive of how you're gonna build that system, where the water gonna come from, where's the reservoir. We had Fur Lake there, only the Army Corps of Engineers, but nobody had ever accessed it to use as a reservoir. So, I mean, you had to think big, you had to dream big, you mm -hmm. had to do what was necessary to, to build the, um, as I call infrastructure, you know, to, to support a city. Uh, and, and that's what we did. And, uh, and, and of course we ran in obstacles. Um, I mean, Jesse Helms was a major obstacle. Um, you know, he was a diehard segregationist uh, even up until the time he was elected to the U.S. Senate. Uh, he launched attacks against the project, but uh, the greatest attacks probably came from the Raleigh News and Observer, a reporter known as Pat Stitt, who did an expose of articles alleging fraud and mismanagement and improprieties uh, and caused the General Accounting Office in Washington to come out and do an audit of the project and stop development for about a year. Um, and even though we received a clean bill of health, financially and, and cleared us of any wrongdoing or impro any improprieties, it still had devastating impact in terms of public perceptions. And, uh, and public perceptions are important when you're trying to recruit jobs and industry to a community and you can build the infrastructure. And we were getting all that together at a time where, um, you know, we, we, we faced some very daunting challenges as a result to Jesse Helms 
um, Congressman L.A. Fountain and, and, of course, the News and Observer. It's almost inconceivable that you could see a project being built that's being building a regional water system that's building a new sewer treatment plant or upgrading it over to Warrington, three and a half million dollars. We got a million dollars for a countywide high school from new communities money. Uh, total cost was only 1.6 billion. Opening up the first cool recreational facilities were open to the public, to serve the public, which about African-Americans. I mean, they had closed down pools back in the 60s as a result of desegregation. So, I mean, we were doing things that were significant. I mean, you're talking about what today would be equivalent to about uh, the equivalent of $87 million rather than what the what dollars we spent back then. But yet to see that many jobs being built, to see that level of public infrastructure being built and to face opposition, most people, if he had been white, my father had been white, they would have probably been building a statue to him and giving him awards rather than trying to condemn him and stop him um, I hate to say it, but only racism can poison your heart and your mind, your imagination to the point where you're fighting to stop the flow of federal money that can build a better life for people and, and, and offer them hope where they are and an opportunity to dream toward a better tomorrow for their families. Lord, you know, uh, Tom, Thomas Healy in his, in his book uh, described your dad and uh, some of the staff people uh, that were, were associated with him as uh, novices. Uh, he said that, uh, well, you know, they were just uh, civil rights activists and had uh, no experience in building uh, anything. And, and what you have uh, described uh, seems to be the direct uh, contradiction uh, 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 of that. And it, it just kind of dawned on me that I don't know any city that was built by developers. Uh, they just emerged from somebody having a dream. So can you kind of talk about the, the, the type of people and who were the people that, uh, that, sure. that Floyd surrounded himself with uh, to develop this concept and to move it forward and to, to begin uh, to build homes and uh, to create this uh, tri-county uh, water system that is still in place. Uh, exactly. in, uh, in those uh, in those counties. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, among the people are people that come to mind like Harvey Gant, who uh, was one of the first African-American graduates from Clemson University, went on to MIT and, and, and got his degree in urban planning architecture, who was the first planner for, for Seoul City uh, before, before I took on the responsibilities there. There had been Harvey Gant. He later went on to become the first African-American mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, run for U.S. Senate here in North Carolina. In fact, against Senator Helms. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I'm thinking about people like Eva Clayton, uh, who became a congresswoman from that from that very district and later on, who uh, who was, uh, you know, had a legal law degree by profession, but likewise had a, an incredible skill set in terms of uh, business acclimate and, 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 and then understanding of what it took to do some grant writing and issues dealing with social policy and health related issues. And, and, and Evo was great about that. I mean, we built a facility known as HealthCo that provided health outpatient and health facilities to people in, all over Warren and Vance counties and gave them free transportation to get there. And they paid a floating rate for their services they received, which meant that most people basically paid nothing for medical and dental services uh, back in that time frame. 
Uh, you're talking about people like George Williams, who at one point was uh, in charge of economic development uh, out in Oakland, California, but he was also there working in planning. I took over the realms of planning from George. I mean, so people had their backgrounds and they had their credentials. And uh, Soul City was one of 13 new communities started in the United States underneath that program. Uh, you know, the, you know the, the, under the New Communities Development Act that was overseen by HUD. But, you know, I, I went with my father and, uh, and with others from Soul City Company and met with developers of uh, Columbia, Maryland, um, who were uh, building that community and saw what they did and understood their infrastructure and understood their land acquisition and how they went about developing their plans. I went to Kettler Village and met with, you know, Milton Kettler and what they did up in Montgomery County up in Maryland in terms of what the way they approached it, understood what was done in Reston, Virginia. I mean, other new towns are similar type projects. And uh, so, I mean, by the time I took on the realms of planning, I knew exactly, I, I probably had more knowledge and expertise about the details of planning uh, than some of the people up there at HUD that were overseeing a program to be candid with you. Um, and, and, and understanding the details of designing it and costing it out and every component to the point where we live within our budgets. We were making our projections in terms of the infrastructure that was being constructed. And, um, you know, and, and basically when people came to review what we were doing, I remember they had consultants that they hired that were out of uh, Harvard uh, that came down, you know, and, um, you know, some of those folks were extraordinarily impressed by what we were accomplishing with the resources that we had available and, and, and what we were doing to move that development forward. So, I mean, there were, there were some, some good folks that, uh, that I had a chance to work with and, uh, and some of those people I had a chance to work with were people who I you know, established enduring long-term relationship with that went on throughout my life. And how did the North Carolina African-American community respond to this effort and development? Very openly, and, and, and they embraced it. They, they loved the ambition, they loved the idea it wasn't unusual on a weekend to see a busload of people that might have come in from someplace else here in North Carolina or maybe even South Carolina or Virginia to literally tour Soul City and to see what we were doing and to come and, you know, and I, I gave many of those tours, explained to people what they were looking at, what they were seeing, and they came and used those recreational facilities. I think it was a, a, a lot of people felt pride in seeing that it was being done by an African-American development company and being done in a way that was uh, was first class. It wasn't some fly-by-night shoddy development. I mean, there were there were nice homes uh, affordable by people in the middle class who could uh, who could obtain things that maybe they had dreamt about and thought about, but uh, uh, they had been uh, unable to in the past. So uh, I think for the most part, I, I would there was a sense of pride. Uh, there was a sense of uh, embracing it. Um, and, and, and to some extent, you, you also saw people who wanted to become involved, uh, would, would like to at some point have bought land there in Soul City. Um, I guess wish that, you know, they had had an opportunity to do so. Um, uh, unfortunately, the government pulled the plug back in 1979 after we had been developing really for about five years or so. And we weren't even able to sell our last $40 million in bonds underneath that loan guarantee commitment from HUD. Uh, which kind of brought things to a standstill and uh, much of the land that was once Soul City ended up being um, sold off to individuals. 
So it'd be hard to recreate it today because I have received that question from people from time <laughs> to time. I mean, it, the, a lot of the infrastructure is there, but to reassemble that large amount of land and to be able to have a centralized development company with a marketing plan and the resources to go out and, you know, attract business and industry and to uh, get people, you know, interested in returning from the Northeast or, you know, to, to live there or likewise or local people to, to stay there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was impressed uh, with the uh, notion that uh, Warren County uh, was chosen given its uh, heavily, heavily African-American uh, population. And then uh, uh, eventually some of the uh, struggles that uh, Warren County had uh, gone through uh, during, uh, during those uh, times. And I do know many of the uh, uh, leaders of that community, Frank Balance, you mentioned T.T. Uh, uh, Clayton and, and Eva uh, Clayton and uh, Andrea Harris and, and others, yes. you know, who were a part of, uh, of, of that uh, effort and the kind of pride uh, that uh, people had in what uh, your father was uh, was trying to uh, to do, but uh, we're moving to to a point that we need to take another break uh, right now and uh, let our audience uh, take a breath uh, with all of this uh, great information that you are providing us uh, with. Uh, so this is the Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we are continuing our conversation with Floyd McKissick uh, Jr. Uh, about uh, Soul City. Uh, the uh, history, the legacy, and uh, the impact of that. And want you to stay with us as uh, we return and continue uh, this conversation with uh, Commissioner uh, McKissick. So we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show or past episodes, for the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Floyd McKissick Jr., who is presently a commissioner of the North Carolina Utilities Commission and also former state senator from Durham and served as the planning director for Soul City which we have been learning a great deal about. Um, as Irv mentioned, in his introduction and throughout, there are many who are not familiar with this history. It's a fascinating history. And there are so many lessons that we can learn from what uh, Mr. 
McKissick Sr. did and his vision and those that supported him. And um, Commissioner, you mentioned the pride that the African-American community had when seeing this effort. You've touched upon it, but before we uh, talk about the legacy and what we can all kind of take from this history, can you just talk a little bit more about the conflict and how this project was derailed because of, of racism as opposed to um, the support being provided that, that certainly would have uh, allowed it to be successful? Sure. Uh, well, you know, we, as I mentioned earlier, we sold our first five million in bonds in March of 74. And literally within a year, um, the News Observer launched uh, a series of news articles that were very negative and derogatory, alleging financial mismanagement of the project, um, um, potential improprieties, and, uh, and, and what they caused to occur. In fact, um, they even reached out to a, a member of Congress to suggest that they needed to do an audit of an investigation of the project. Uh, Jesse Helms, who had always been a diehard segregationist and, uh, and committed that he was going to stop the project when he went into the Senate, uh, you know, he and L.H. Fountain asked for that audit, General Accounting Office, um, as well as other investigations, even consulted with the FBI. And we received basically a clean bill of health. There wasn't any wrongdoing. There wasn't any improprieties. Uh, everything was in good shape. The problem is you, you had all these negative headlines for basically a year. Uh, you had negative editorials being written. And then when you get the clean bill of health, it's one day story that's a short column that doesn't receive any notoriety whatsoever. Uh, so but the negative impressions and misperceptions of Soul City had taken root, uh, which was unfortunate because it's difficult to deal with business and industry. We had folks who were interested in locating there because of the locational attributes it had. But sometimes you'd have to talk to talk them into the idea of being in a place called Soul City based upon the controversy that we had become embroiled in. And, uh, and it became such a problem that we actually at one point took our 500 acre industrial park and referred to it as the Warren Industrial Park uh, in, in Manson. I mean, it's right there at Soul City, it's part of Soul City, but you know, if that's what it would take to get an industry to come, then you, know, you look at doing that. I mean, we had a building we built called Soltech One at about 73, 74,000 square feet. There were industries located out of the 50,000 square feet that was reserved for kind of industrial manufacturing uh, purposes. But you know, we wanted people to come and build their own buildings and, uh, you know, and to establish that employment base and that could, so it could support you know, the housing that needed to be built um, under a contract with HUD. Um, we could not actually build a housing ourselves. So, I mean, the housing would have to be built by others. We could build the infrastructure. We could build community facilities. We did go out and build a, you know, a health facility, as I mentioned earlier, that served Warren and Vance counties. We built a fire station. We built the first pool and recreational facilities over the public. So we did a lot in that very compressed time frame, that five years. But you got to understand, you just can't build a city on wells and septic tanks. So the infrastructure was a necessity and it was required under our contract with the government. So that became the focus of our efforts in the early years. And by the time we got to the point where we had things in order, uh, that's when the federal government eventually pulled the plug. So we did not realize uh, the opportunity to really market ourselves with our fullest potential 
in an environment that would have been open and constructive and conducive to us achieving our goals. And I think that uh, you know people need to really understand the value that uh, the infrastructure created by Soul City still uh, have for people who are resident uh, of Granville, Vance, and Warren counties uh, today. Uh, and without, for instance, the water system uh, yeah. there, uh, unlike uh, Jackson, Mississippi, uh, that uh, we are hearing about uh, almost uh, daily, uh, a modern water system was put in place that is still operating and providing for the growth and development of each of those counties. Can, so can you kind of talk about some of the, the remnants of uh, Soul City that continues sure. to Benefit. Well, I mean, the water system continues. I mean, you know, as I say, we built a new countywide high school. Warren County hadn't had a new high school built, who knows, probably in 50 years. I mean, but we built a Warren County high school. It was about $1.6 million, of which a million dollars came from uh, Soul City and the new communities administration to do that. I mean, people going to that high school today have no idea had it not been for Seoul City, that high school would not have been built and it would not have been operational. It would have been possible. They didn't have the tax base to do it. So, I mean, you know, there, there, there's living legacy such as that, you know, that we, we had Health Co that operated for basically three decades uh, providing healthcare services. Uh, ultimately, it was relocated to Norlina in terms of another entity that's now doing that. But, uh, you know, sewer treatment plant over in Warren County. I mean, of all the monies that went to Soul City or the attributable to Soul City, roughly about 70 to 75% were for infrastructure that still continues to be utilized today. Roads that were constructed, uh, uh, underground electric service that was put in, pool, recreational facilities, all of that. Uh, in fact, interestingly enough, I uh, read an article in today's paper where there's a lady who had bought some farmland that apparently adjoins Soul City today. And she was naming her farm uh, Soul City in honor of, uh, of that project. And she mentioned how her kids love to go to that pool. And it was the only place open. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's symbolic of a lot of things, the name even today to those who uh, still understand and, and respect its legacy and its contributions. And uh, even in recent years, as a member of the state Senate, I was able to, uh, to help and facilitate that water system being expanded. Uh, to serve even uh, a greater population and a base today. I mean, development taking place in Granville County and in Vance County today would not be occurring without that water system. And now Franklin County enjoys water from that water system. It was extended over Franklin County probably about uh, 20 years ago. And they really like to get a whole lot more of that water uh, to open up development in Franklin County uh, because they, they don't have it uh, in the section of Franklin County where uh, it enjoys uh, areas that, uh, the regional water system uh, provides water today. Commissioner, why do you think that this this history has been um, lost or suppressed? I mean, it's it's so fascinating and, and inspirational and motivational. Why are well, we not know, hearing more about it? Well, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where frequently contributions to African Americans are discredited. They don't talk about what it accomplished. They don't talk about what was done. They don't talk about the lasting legacy of those investments. They rather present it as a failed effort uh, that was unsuccessful. Uh, and, 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 and the connotation is failure is that 
you know, it's not something that should be repeated. It's not something that should be done. It's not something you should be proud of. Where I think it's a lot to be proud of in terms of learning and understanding from Soul City and what Soul City did accomplish. And, uh, and, and I think it's unfortunate because we need to preserve our history. But more importantly, we need to make sure that our textbooks and uh, reflect the history of North Carolina in a racially diverse way. And we might talk about what the News and Observer did and the leaders of Daniel's family in 1898 down in Wilmington, North Carolina, which mm -hmm. led to the first basically two coup d'etat to unseat black elected officials mm -hmm. at the turn of the century. Um, we, we need to learn from that. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> need to understand that, you know, there were ongoing efforts in the 70s launched by the same newspaper that had been a white developer or a person other than Floyd McKissick and, an, and a majority African-American development company I think they would have got behind it. I think they would have sort supported it. I think it would have epitomized the greatness and the good that was going to transform an economically depressed portion of our state. And it would have been, and people would be sitting there building a statue to my father or, the, or to a white person who would have done the same thing. And maybe they ought to take down one of those Confederate statues and put one up in <laughs> Warren County in honor of man really deserve that recognition. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, the parallels between the Wilmington, Wilmington coup d'etat and Soul City, uh, I, you know, one of the common threads is, of course, Black economic empowerment. That's and, right. you know, why is there always this resistance when we are seeking more than just, you know, and there's going to be resistance even when we were seeking integration, but it seems as though the resistance is um, even more severe when we're talking about leveling things when it comes to economic development. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it does. I think you're absolutely right. When it comes to economic development, it is put down completely. When it comes to political involvement and engagement, I mean, we transformed Warren County. They only had one African-American serving on the school board that had been appointed in a county that was 68% black. I mean, and, and you see it to the day where you have a majority of African-American commissioners that are, you know, uh, county commissioners serving. They were threatened by that political power. They were threatened about that change. They were threatened about what that mean in terms of them losing influence, in terms of them not being the ones in control, rather than embracing that transition that could occur and understanding how everybody could benefit from Soul City and what it sought to do. I think there were those who did. I think those that recognized it, somebody like uh, Mayor Hugh Curran over in Oxford, uh, Melvin Holmes, city manager up in Henderson, they understood it. They, they knew what needed to be done. I mean, in fact, my dad said something to Hugh Curran one day about uh, getting down this sign that was right there off of Interstate 85. He said, nice Ku Klux Klan, you know, welcome you to Granville County. And, and, and the mayor went back and he said to the guys, he said, look, it's bad for economic development. Time has passed. That stuff needs to come down. And within 30 days, that sign came down. Yeah. You know, another piece of this is that you know, I'm, I'm so proud of the role that uh, HBCUs played in oh, uh, yes. preparing uh, people to uh, be involved there. Floyd, of course, uh, graduated from uh, North Carolina 
uh, Central uh, University Law School, even though he desegregated uh, UNC uh, Law School and attended there for a semester, uh, he came back home to, uh, to graduate. Uh, Eva Clayton, who uh, That's right. was uh, one of our grads, and, uh, and, and, and April Andrea Harris, uh, who was That's right. Bennett Bale. Uh, That's right. Know, the, the Bennett Bale, uh, right. who was an integral <laughs> part of the uh, Soul City in her younger day. Uh, oh, I knew Andrea from very well back in the 60s. She and, uh, and Lou Myers, who we, yep. I think you know as well. Uh, Lou was very much a part of uh, all of this. Inez Myers, who yep. built a senior citizen facility up in Soul City that, that ran for, operated for quite some time. Uh, you know, I, I think about all of those people that were active, engaged, instrumental, and contributed in their own unique ways. And were all part of that special synergy that came together to help carry out what was Soul City and to help carry it, implement part of that dream. Yeah, so it has a history, it has a history. And uh, April, I think you're absolutely correct that this is a uh, suppressed history uh, in the uh, knowledge base uh, within, uh, within the state and around the country. Uh, because Floyd was more than just a North Carolina uh, hero. He was a national uh, figure uh, and uh, was one who never gave up on, uh, on Durham and, uh, and North Carolina and was a uh, contributor to all of the fights during that uh, 1960 uh, civil rights uh, era. And uh, so I was, uh, I, I can say I, I was proud uh, to have uh, been associated with him uh, during, uh, during those years that he was doing all the stuff that would knock me off my seat. <laughs> well, I, I learned a lot from him during those years. And uh, he was actually one of those people who first talked about the idea of environmental racism, too, mm -hmm. uh, when they started to build a, a PBC landfill in Warren County. And yeah. uh, he was active engaged in the demonstrations and was arrested. Uh, you know, as part of the protest and, and help lead those efforts. So, you know, back that was a point in time where environmental racism was not known as a concept yet. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and it was the beginning of the uh, Black uh, environmental uh, protection right. uh, effort uh, around, the, uh, around the country with uh, marches and demonstrations going on uh, on a uh, regular basis. So uh, you're absolutely uh, correct. Uh, so April, we have uh, we have a lot of history here uh, that's been uh, suppressed. Absolutely, and um, Commissioner McKissick, thank you for helping us get this information out. Uh, our hope is that this just begins the conversation, and that folks who are hearing about this will do some more research, learn about it, and share it with their uh, sons, daughters, nieces, nephews grandchildren, um, because this is a rich history and it is something to be celebrated um, and to be, uh, and to learn from, right? Because, you know, as you noted, when we look at what happened in Wilmington, this is not that far off from that. And we need to know that uh, sometimes our advances isn't because of lack of, of boldness or desire or ability. Oftentimes it's because there are challenges and roadblocks that are put in our way. And we need to be mindful of that history so we can uh, continue to push and fight and, um, and grow and particularly in the economic empowerment area. 
Well, thank you, April. Thank you, Irv, for having me here today. And uh, if one thing I can say to each and every one of you, dare to dream, dare to make this a better place, dare to work hard for those things that you believe in, those principles, those things that are near and dear to your heart and for equal rights and opportunities for, for everyone, including the economic, the opportunity to be a part of the economic mainstream of America, not just have equal rights, but be able to use those rights effectively and to allow opportunities for competency to excel, regardless of your race, regardless of your religion, regardless of your sexual orientation or gender identity, because that's what makes America great. That's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Commissioner McKissick. We so appreciate your time. Um, Attorney Floyd McKissick, as we've mentioned before, he is a commissioner on the North Carolina Utilities Commission, a former state senator representing the proud city county of Durham. And he served, as we've talked about, as the planning director for the wonderful Soul City. We'd also like to thank you, as always, our listening audience, for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We are sure that you have learned something and, again, spread this information far and wide. And if you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss the show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.